Jack Reese. What is going on, my friend? I appreciate you doing this. Oh, you're very welcome, man. You know, you were persistent. You're a New York guy, and I'm going to do it, you know? Well, you're a Brooklyn boy out there on the West Coast. What food do you miss the most from the Big Apple? Pizza. Hands down. Chinese food, too. You know what? <laughs> Pizza and Chinese food, because I love Chinese food, Cantonese style, bowl hops, uh, 69 Bayard Street in Manhattan, you know, that kind of stuff. Wow, bringing back the address. Okay, but let's be fair. What food out there is good, is better than Brooklyn? It's better than Brooklyn, huh? Yes. They make um, good, like, chicken breast sandwiches with avocado and all kinds of stuff all over them that are healthy. And they make, uh, trying to think, uh, I don't know. I, I just missed what I grew up on. Coney Island, right? Coney Island boy growing up? Coney Island, right, by, right down the street from Nathan's. Big sports guy growing up? Oh, yeah. Hockey. Rangers, man. Kidding? Hockey was your thing? Hockey was my thing. What about yeah, baseball? Real quick, Mike. Yeah, let me see. Can you see this? I see you. It looks like you're in a Rangers jersey next to somebody. Who is Vic that? Vic Hadfield, captain of the Rangers. He was my favorite player. And this uh, guy who was like a – my father died when I was about eight. And this guy who was my brother's baseball coach, he and his wife befriended me and my brother. And he was a Rangers season ticket holder. And he introduced me to hockey. And then uh, I played in the Met League. You remember the Met League? Of course, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I played the Met League. I played for the Brooklyn Stars a little bit. Where did the love of boxing start? And not just boxing, also kickboxing. I know you're a big kickboxing guy. Hold on, I'll go tell you. I'll show you. I went to the same I went to the same public school that my mom and dad did. Oh wow. PS one hundred. Okay. And uh, my father, I don't know how to explain my father, but um, this is my father on the beach in Coney Island in 1928. What a great picture! That's like an old school black and white picture. That's a great picture. So look at the look at the uh, bathing suits on the ladies sitting I in the chair. So my father loved boxing, and I got pictures up on this wall. I don't know if you can see it. Oh, let me pull it down. Are you making me take all my pictures off the wall? <laughs> so this is my brother and I on a snow mound. You know, with boxing, with fists up. With, boxing's been in my life my whole life. You know. Now, Jack, boxing has – but what about kickboxing? Because that doesn't seem like a normal thing. Oh, no, no, I'll tell you the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my father dies. We, we were, in, were living in Bensonhurst. Where are you from? I'm from Staten Island. I live in Bay Ridge now. Okay. All right. So I'm living in Bensonhurst, and um, there was this r- new neighborhood in uh, Queens called, believe it or not, at the time, called Rochdale Village. Turned out to be a lot of people from Brooklyn and Canarsie and places were going to these buildings that were, um, because it was supposed to be the new and upcoming neighborhood, and it turned out to be a a shit show. Uh, A bad neighborhood, and my mother had to get us out of there really quick, and she did in about a year. We came back and we moved to that white building, and I was nine, and uh, I was playing hockey, and I was starting to get better, and, uh, you know, go not that I was a good player or anything like that, but I was going into a league with guys a lot older than me. And I wasn't the t- most talented guy, but I always dropped the gloves. So <laughs> I wanted to learn how to box. So I found Gleason's Boxing Gym, and my mom absolutely, like, went crazy. No, 14, 15, you're not getting on a train, going to Gleason's, coming home at 10 o'clock at night on the F train, you know, and all that stuff. So I found a local martial arts school. And you know the guy, if you live in Bay Ridge, it's on Avenue, right off of McDonald, 
Louis Neglia, okay. uh, Martial Arts Academy. So I was one of Louis's uh, first black belts, me and, you know, these Tommy Luke and all these other guys. And I, I started kickboxing there, and I always loved boxing. And uh, I did both. Uh, when I came, then when I came to California, uh, I had some fights for the uh, L.A. Fire against Battle of the Badges. You know, yeah, fight yeah, yeah. That's it. So I've been around fighting my whole life. You know. well, let's rewind a little bit. Why'd you leave Brooklyn and go to California? Fill in the dots there. Because I had a, a, a full contact kickboxing match at uh, Lewis's school, Sensei okay. school. And uh, he couldn't find anybody my weight. So I trained. The first guy fell out. Then the second guy fell out. And then the third, I finally fi- had to fight. And I trained for months. I did 105 rounds of sparring for a three-round fight. So it was unheard of. I was beat up. You know, not beat up physically, beat up mentally. I threw a roundhouse kick and I, in the top of my uh, foot, my instep, had a bruise on it. And I said, let me take a little vacation. And I went to visit a guy I grew up with in that white building. Mm-hmm. He was going to Cal State Northridge out here. I visited him for two weeks and I said, I'm going to stay a while. And then uh, here I am, still here. And then what made you join the Los Angeles City Fire Department? I needed a job. <laughs> <laughs> that, but you know what I love? You brought Brooklyn with you. You asked every cop and fireman, why'd you join? I needed a job. I needed a city job. Actually, I was uh, I was bouncing around with different things, trying to, you know, make my way. And I, I just felt at 23 um, fighting. I wanted to be a pro fighter, and it just wasn't happening. Okay. Pro kickboxer. I probably would have made 15 cents about it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it just wasn't happening. And after that fight, you know, reality hit me that it's just disorganized. At that time, it really was. Where am I going? What am I doing with this thing? And I got to make a living. And I was able to, like, really lay, sit around with no distractions from my family when I was in California. I have time to think. And I realized I, I better get going because I'm going to be – Jackie from the neighborhood if I don't get going. And I never really planned on staying out here. It just happened. And after the summer was over, I was, you know, starting to run out of money. So I started looking for jobs. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to another. And then some guy, uh, I filled out an application for every job in the city. Department of Water, Con Ed, uh, gas company, you name it. I filled it out. And I got called and that was it. And then you... LAFD, you climbed the ranks, you're a captain for like 20 something years. What do you miss the most about those times? I, I don't miss I don't miss the uh, circus. I miss the clowns. You know, the guys, uh, I got some lifelong friends from the job. Um, not as many as you would think after 31 years, but I got a few core lifelong friends that if I if they call, I answer and vice versa. And if something's up, we're there for each other and can't give that you can't get get that everywhere. I mean, it's great. I know uh, L.A. flew you out after 9-11. You were down at, uh, at Ground Zero. Yeah. FD brothers all over the world. You guys are all brothers. Now you're there in your old backyard. How emotional was that for you seeing all that and being a part of that? Horrible. Um, horribly emotional. Um, when I got there, uh, nobody really quite knew what we were going there for except to support everybody. In everybody's mind, it was we're going to go dig out and find live, you know, who's ever alive. And the reality is, Mike, when I got there, my buddy, uh, two of the guys that flew on like a, a, a military plane with the department a day before met us and 
brought us over and said, Hey Jack, you want to go see the, want to go to the pile right now? I said, hell yeah. You know, I get to the pile right in front of, uh, you know, right by truck 10 engine 10, the 10 house. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was not too far from that. And it's, it's dusk. It's, you know, light, it's dusk. So it's gray in the sky anyway, but here's this gray freaking smoke permeating the area this electrical burning smell, you can't get away from it. The saddest, the saddest thing I've ever seen with all these guys lost their friends, all these kid, uh, kids lost their parents, the whole bit. And I'm there thinking, you know, we're, we're coming here to help. And I'm standing on this pile for about 45 minutes, just looking around, right? I didn't see one doorknob. I didn't see one toilet bowl. And I didn't see one file cabinet in those. Can you imagine? So it was pulverized. And I realized we ain't pulling anybody out of here alive. So I did everything I could just to help in other ways. You know, the digging was a, like a futile effort. It was it was really recovery. Yeah. It wasn't rescue anymore. Because um, I got there on Friday morning. I was We were going on Wednesday morning. Happened Tuesday. I was going Wednesday they shut LaGuardia and Kennedy down for a bomb threat. And then we got out on uh, Thursday and we got there Friday. Oof, you know, Thursday, mid, uh, a uh, red eye. That's heavy. Oh, my God. It just was, I don't know how to, you know, my, my words don't do it justice. It was just the saddest thing you've ever been around. I, but the other side of it is <clears throat> the New Yorkers, man, they were awesome. <laughs> Lining the streets on both sides on the west side highway with the flags, right? From Canal Street, yeah, from Canal Street North, with water bottles for us, signs for us, American flags. It was unbelievable, unbelievable. That, yeah, that was a sick time. You, you're right. I'm glad you put both because everyone always talks about the horribleness, which it was, but how New York got together and stuff. Oh man, they I rallied, remember, man. Yeah, they did. They did. Let's get back to your career now because you became a ref in '88. Cops and firemen. No, 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 98. 98. Cops and firemen all have side gigs. How'd that side gig? Now, I know you're a boxing guy. How'd you even enter that realm of like, I want to start boxing? I want to do a ref? Yeah. I'll tell you, but I want to just jump to one story. Yeah, of course. Trinidad was supposed supposed to fight Hopkins in the garden on the 15th of September September in 2001. Okay. The fight got postponed. So I'm there at ground zero and, you know, through word of mouth. MSG and the people that work for the Javits Center and all these places, they were all offering their services, housing us and transportation with buses, whatever needed. The New Yorkers, I'm telling you, these big corporations, the small, they came out in droves. They couldn't do enough. So this one gal that works for MSG is talking and she says, oh, yeah, I work for Madison Square Garden to somebody. And they said, oh, really? Do you know Jack Reese is, is a boxing referee? And she, they come over and introduce us, and we start chatting. I go, yeah, yeah. She goes, you know, we postponed the fight. It's the 30th now. Uh, the fight's going to be the 30th order. I can't remember what it was, the last day of the month. She says, would you like to go? I said, hell yeah. <laughs> so everybody, every, we stayed for two weeks, and every I got permission to stay, and I went to the Hopkins-Trinidad fight. That's it, great. Like, oh. That's pretty awesome. And I went down, and I went down. That night, uh, you know, the guards were pretty cool. And I got down and I said, hey, can you, can, is, is Arthur McCanny Sr. here? Could you please get a hold of him? I'd like to say hello. 
And he had met me once at a WBC convention and I sent him his book that I read, which is a great book if you're a referee and he autographed it for me, mm-hmm. but we really hadn't seen each other face to face since. So somebody went and got him and him and junior came out and uh, we got the, the BS for a while and all that stuff. And uh, that's incredible. Yeah. And, and I played him in the movie Ali with Will Smith. So that was our connection too. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, it was fun. So, so bring me back now. So the side okay. gig. How does side gig of a ref come? Because that's a great side gig. So I fought for the uh, fire department against the sheriffs. I've always loved boxing. I was going to box matches since I'm a kid. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, I always had this in my head. I wanted to be part of professional sports. I always thought about being a referee. I talked myself out of it for a good 10 years. I literally said, wow. you don't know anybody. How are you going to get in? I used to have uh, season tickets to the Kings because I love hockey. Yeah. And, stuff. and I, I said, I'd like to get it. I always thought, let me get a side gig that I could do in professional sports. So I applied myself. I tried to be the guy opening the penalty box store at the King Games. Totally nepotistic and crony- cronyism. Yeah. I couldn't get into that. And I started pushing with the commission. I, I um, The funniest thing is I didn't know, you know, this is 1996. Uh, I, you know, what do you know about boxing except what you see on TV? Of course, I, that's it. Now everything's on the internet. It's easy. So I didn't, I wanted to be um, a ref or at least get an opportunity or whatever. So I called the Nevada State Athletic Commission. I'm living in California and I called Come Nevada. on, Okay. That was the only athletic commission I knew. Yeah, of right? course, of course. So I'm getting ready to talk, and I, and you know, in my head, I got like a resume, like a, a, a <laughs> an oral interview, ready to go. If I could just get to the right person, and the phone rings and goes, "Hello, Nevada State Athletic Commission." I said, "Can I speak to the executive office?" He goes, "This is Mark Ratner." I go, "This is Mark Ratner?" He goes, "Yeah." <laughs> and oh my God! I shut up for ten minutes. I just kept. I went through this whole thing. And he says, you know, Jack, uh, it sounds like you do have some qualifications because, you know, with uh, being a, f- a fireman, I was uh, an EMT for 31 mm-hmm. years. I worked on a paramedic rescue. I've been to so much trauma. I have a really, I believe, a uh, good grasp of what concussions are and trauma is and blood don't scare me. And, you know, I've seen, you can't believe what I've seen. Of course, um, yeah. But too much. Yeah. Anyway, so Ratner says, you know, it really sounds like you do have some qualifications and you might be a good referee. He says, but why are you calling the Nevada athletic commission? He says, you got to call the California athletic commission. Well, how did I know? You know? <laughs> so he gave me the number and I called the California athletic commission and I just, uh, I was lucky. Uh, God was looking over me, but also I was in the right spot at the right time. A year and a half later, they decided to have this program because the referees were getting old. And I got in, and there were 102 people in this program. Richard Steele's son. Um, wow, wow. They booted his ass because he thought he was going to make it because he was Richard Steele's son. Of course. And, um, so many people that were there had a connection to a referee mm-hmm. or a judge or a, do- a timekeeper or a doctor. And it was me and just like this other this gal that I met at the time that was there. We were like. I'm sure there were more, but she was the only one I really knew that 
we don't have any connections. We had nothing. In fact, we were sitting there, and I, uh, she says to me, she says, so, so who's your father or brother? What's your connection here? I said, nobody. How about you? She says, nobody. And I said, you know what? We're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> was that many people. Yeah, everyone had a hook, yeah. Referees, sons, and stuff like that. But we were both fortunate. Uh, I got through. They only, uh, only nine people made it when the whole thing was over. So you're fighting fires and basically going to ref school at the same time. Oh, yeah. It was easy because my schedule was so flexible. I could now, trade days off. I could move days around. And I had to go to um, the classes. They told us when they were in advance. So I took those Saturdays off, and it was it was easy. Now, is it like kind of like being an ump where you start in Little League, high school, college, and work your way up? How does that work with boxing? Because every yeah, fight's a serious fight. Yeah, somebody's life's on the line and their career's on the line. Um, the best route you could take is to become a USA boxing official, in my opinion, or some kind of boxing official in the amateurs. And also uh, another great route would be to become work for the commission as an inspector because you get some experience of what, you know, the, you know, taping, rapping, all the games that are played in the locker room. You get to see firsthand guys in trouble coming out concussed and what the doctors do, all the regulations that the doctors have to fulfill on the walkthroughs before the event with the ambulances. So you, you have a front row seat. Yeah. Kenny Bayless, to give an example, was an inspector for years before he became a referee. Wow. And the California Athletic Commission now pretty much asks you to volunteer your time for a while as a volunteer, be an inspector, and then be an inspector and demonstrate that you really want to do this. And if you've got some boxing background, maybe they'll let you shadow uh, the refs and start training. Come through my the class I just put on and mm-hmm. other things as well. I'm going to ask you an amateur question as a fan. How are you judged? It's very easy for you and I to watch a Yankees game right now and judge it. Like, he missed the call right there. He missed that strike. How are you judged as a ref? Like, you go in the back. Are they pulled you aside? Hey, Jack, you know, as a young ref, a young Jack Reese, hey, you did this wrong, you did that. How are you judged or critiqued? Just the way you said, and it's brutal. Um, So everything you do in your performance is being critiqued. And if if you – look, it's normal. I make a lot of mistakes. We all do. Those who think they don't are just lying to to the public. It's impossible to be in the perfect position to see everything at all times. Because it's changing. They're moving. They're running. You're running. It's so easy to be coming out from behind and you miss a headbutt or a punch. And then, um, so like in other sports, they got four, seven, eight guys on it. And they can call timeout. And they can go to the replay and they can yeah. come to a group decision. If we do that, we start, we ruin the continuity of the fight. We gave somebody who might be damaged rest. So we're really stuck and we have to rest. Uh, we have to, you know, our decision rests on what we do instantaneously, although we are doing instant replay now, which is so it's getting better. But um, uh, it's difficult. And when we get out afterward, our uh, chief inspector or the athletic uh, executive officer goes through the fights with us and says, hey, you had a difficult situation here. I really, just per se, Mm -hmm. I really thought you should have took points or I really thought you should have stopped the fight here. We'd like you to go look at it. And to be frank with you, if it's egregious, you're on the bench. And I've been on the bench. We've all been on the bench. And they're not going to put you on any big title fights for a while, and you got to work your way back up 
you got to work your way back up through uh, the undercard fights. And uh, as a judge, same thing. You screwed up. That's what I was going to ask you next. It's so pressure packed as a ref. Why not go the judge route? You still get front row seats. I, don't know, I, I love this. This is what I love. I, I judge also. In California, you have to do both. Oh, really? So you're trained as a judge also? I trained when I trained to do both. Wow, that's interesting. All of us did. All of us did. That's great. It gives you, you a perspective from both sides. You could have either declared to be a judge only, mm-hmm. which Max DeLuca, the world-class, one of the best refs, uh, judges in the world did. He was the smart one. He said, <laughs> just, just a judge. And a bunch of us, uh, me, Ray Corona, um, Jerry Cantu, a couple bunch of guys, we all said we're going to do both. And we did. We know cops and firemen. They love a lot of free things. How many guys were harassing you for tickets to these fights when you were uh, repping a big fight? Happens all the time. <laughs> I love it. Hey, so you have, like we said, front row seats to some of the biggest fights in history. Um but it also let you travel the world. Give me some cool place. I'm obsessed with traveling. Give me some cool places uh, boxing has uh, afforded you the option to travel to. Well, it's it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. You know, I'm a I'm a schnook from Brooklyn. <laughs> I rough fights in Moscow, in New Zealand, in Australia, in England, in Japan, China, um, Singapore. Uh, I don't know, just Germany, plenty of times. It's unbelievable, and you know I've always tried to, when I could, go in a day or two early or stay a day or two late. And the best trip I ever had was, I did a fight in Moscow, and on the way home, the um, they had a travel agency handling all the travel, so it wasn't like I was going to the promoter for anything. Yeah. And I just I said, look, I'll pay anything you need to, but just route me through Rome. So my son was living in Florence, and he met me for five days, and we ran around. In Florence and in uh, and in uh, Rome for five days. It was the greatest trip I've had. You're a California guy, but Ref also brought you to Hollywood. Tell me about being on the big screen in Ali, uh, Creed, Daredevil. You were in all these movies. How does that happen? You know, Hollywood look. Hollywood. You know what they say? It um, uh, it mirrors reality. The movies mirror. So they're smart. They're really smart. They could bring a, spe- a guy with a specialty in, like a race car driver for a race car movie or a baseball player, whatever. So for this, they bring referees in when they have fight movies. And to be frank with you, they're getting way more than they bargained for because we explain to them the reality. You know, some they don't know. You know, sometimes they have the wrong amount of ropes. They don't they don't know any of the procedural things that would actually be normally happening happening in a ring. So they, they, hey, how would this work? We tell them and we help them and stuff like that. How long were those days on sets? I have a lot of actors on the show and they say some of those sets are just long days. Are they long days They're brutal. For you? Yeah. They're brutal. <laughs> I can't believe how much, it's amazing how much film and how much they shoot over and over and over again just to get one little nuance. But then you see it on the screen, you go, whoa, you know, it was great. How does the call happen like with the Will Smith Ali movie? Do you just get a phone call like, hey, Jack, uh, so-and-so's on the phone. They want you to go work Ali with Will Smith. Actually, with that one, they, um, my buddy – ha- it happens to me now the opposite way. So my buddy who was in Rocky, uh, three of Rocky movies, he was the referee in it. They, they, someone reached out to him and said, hey, we need a bunch of officials. So he got me and a bunch of other guys, and he gave it to us. But like with me – I, I get reached out to now every now and then by like um, 
the the stunt the coordinator for the movies, and they say, "Hey, yo, we'd like you to come here and do this," because they ask them to get the guys, and then like I can't make it, so I just have them do my, you know, uh, the guys or my peers or my friends. Back I've done that three times. Back to real fighting. Do you remember your first big fight? Doesn't have to be a title fight. Your first big fight. You know, I don't know what you would call a big fight, but, you know, from the very first one, I know I was taught mm-hmm. it's the most important thing in the world to that kid who's fighting. And I take every one of them like it's a world championship fight. But along the way, you know, box rec, you know, box rec. Of course, of course. It wasn't in existence when I started. So they're missing. They're missing eight years of my career, partial and full. Oh, and I, I added it up. Someone asked me. It's a long story, but. They're missing 125 bout cards, you know, like where I, mo- I refereed multiple fights. Sure. So when I'm closing in with box rec, I'm closing in on a thousand ref fights ref right now. So it's actually way more. So to give you one early fight or something would be difficult because I've had wonderful experiences and then some not so good on, you know, lots of fights. Biggest mistake, in your opinion, you ever made in the ring? Where do, where do I begin? No, I, <laughs> so let me let me put it to you this way. I always look at it. I, I'm, I'm my own worst critique, mm-hmm. a critic, and I critique myself after every fight. And the thing different now from back in the day, the wonderful thing about social media is I could usually find all my fights somewhere. Somebody has a film of it, whether it's on a cell phone or it was being streamed. So I get to pick it apart and look at it, and I'm always looking to – see what I did in these situations that come up. What could I have done different or better? Wow. If this same situation happens to me again, what could I do different or better? So that's all the time. I'm very rarely satisfied that, you know. Always trying to improve still. Are you kidding? I'm I'm still learning. It's, It's everything that goes on in that ring is not written down in a book. You can't read and jump. It's impossible. So... Let me ask you about 15. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go, go. So, that being said, about always improving and always wanting to do something a little different or better, and the world's changed since I started reffing. It is so much more important now in today's time to include the stakeholders, the shareholders, and the shareholders are the fans, the the commissions, the, the promoters, the sanctioning bodies, everyone who really has a stake in this fight. You know, we think, for, you know, guy, referees will think, you know, they're the most important thing. There's people with a lot of money and a lot of time invested more than you have in that fight. And you've got to be conscious to that fact so you don't make it all about you and make the wrong call. You know, you got to consider all those things. So I try to sell my calls now a lot more than I ever did in the beginning. And what I mean by sell my calls is make my case. If you're pissing me off, Mike, I'm going to slowly start warning you and and letting people see me reprimanding you for lack of better terms. And I try I personally try to bring it to a point where the crowd. Can I curse? Yeah, of course. I try. I personally try to bring it to a point where the crowd says, I wish that guy would take a fucking point already. And right at that point, when I take a point, everybody's happy. I took a point instead of throwing shit at me. That's what I like to personally do, but that's what you do by making your case. And it's the same thing on a stoppage. You can't just arbitrarily stop a fight. If the guy's sitting there and he's 
winging back. It's got to be, you got to set it up where realize that, um, I'll give you an example. You got a 10 round fight and you're in the sixth and the guy hasn't won one round. He can't win mathematically. You got to ask yourself, does he have a puncher's chance? Is he really, you know, not a, everybody has a puncher's yeah, chance, but if he hasn't laid any punches in the last six rounds, to show he's got a real puncher's chance, no good. Does he have visible physical damage? And uh, you got to ask yourself, we got to, what's the best thing for boxing? We better get this guy out of there. And the commentators, a lot of them, not a lot of them, there's a few that, that are one, there's, there's a lot of great commentators, but I do have, um, I do have a, an ax to grind with a few of them that really don't know what they're looking at. Some, some of these guys don't know the difference between activity and effectiveness. Throwing your arms with arm punches isn't effective. You're not doing any damage. And just because a guy's throwing back doesn't mean he's in the fight. And if he's getting his ass thrashed and he can't win mathematically, he's, he's got visible physical damage and he's fighting to survive, we'd rather let, let him live to fight another day. So we got to slowly start setting up that stoppage. You know, letting everybody know what's coming. So when we stop it, it didn't look arbitrary. It's like whenever there's a huge fight, the talking heads all come out. They don't talk for 355 days a year. But when there's a big fight, the two days before they're on ESPN, two days after critiquing it, when they don't talk about boxing for 98%, and then they try to crush the refs and this, it's like, dude, you, that's what bothers me the most. Like, um, I'm just Stephen A. Smith. I'm just gonna throw one out there. Just I was gonna say the same name. Oh, and like, cause he he doesn't talk about boxing. Max Kellerman does. When they would, Max you know, Kellerman knows his shit. He knows it. Best that ever did it. Yes. So Stephen A. Smith will come out and just start ranting about this bad stoppage. It's like Steve, you don't talk about it. You you can't be into every sport. So someone like that gets frustrated, right? All right, we're on the he same page with that, Jack. Stephen A. Smith don't know the difference between a fish hook and a left hook. He, I don't know how they they just got him because he speaks so uh, he he's so animated that people yes. love him, but he's not a boxing guy, you know. He's not, uh, he's, he's not like Max Kellerman and many other guys. You know, the guys I really love are like Sergio Mora. He's an ex-fighter. And Andre Ward was fantastic. And there's guys out there like, look, the ESPN crew is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Chris Mannix, in my opinion, he's, he's really good. Uh, but he's coming along. And someday he's going to be a great commentator. But there's, uh, there's a lot of good ones out there. But there, there are... There are there's some that just really aren't good. And uh, it, some of the fighters really make good commentators because they see the subtleties. They see what's happening to the fighter, like we do, in the body language. They see it before it's dramatic. They see it when it's it's just starting to happen. Oh, he didn't like that. He's in trouble, you know, things like that. And they go, this is what's going to happen, and it happens. It's, it's very great. similar to when Tony Romo first got in the booth and he started calling the plays. When you have these guys like Chris Algieri, when he does it, it's like, he's hurt. I'm like, is he? And then a couple of rounds later, I'm like, he nailed it. This guy's right. I, I love it as a fan. I'm like, oh, wow, exactly. they're telling you exactly what's going Chris on. Chris is another guy that calls it and stuff like that. He calls it well. But, you know, Joe Tessitore has been around for years. He knows what he's talking about. Mark Kriegel, oh, wonderful. And and Bernardo, Bernardo Orsuno, those guys are great, too. So uh, there's a lot of good guys, but there's a few that stink up the, stink up the show. And it's great because now I get to say that because they say that about us. Yeah, all. yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. How does a big fight happen? How do you get the call? How far in advance do you get a call? Hey, Jack, you're going to, uh, you know, officiate this fight. Do they ask you? Do they tell you? How does that work? And do like, hey, you're, you're going to get, obviously, uh, Fury Wilder. And like, how 
far in advance? Are you checking tape? How does that whole process come about? So, you know, now in the modern day, we have uh, an electronic um, scheduling program that notify, like, you know, you sign up for your avail availability. Okay. And I'll tell you, every referee signs up across the board. We're available. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's a terrible thing in, in a way. Every trainer, every second, every uh, uh, referee or judge will tell you, the things that we give up to be in that ring or be part of that are incredible. I've missed weddings. I've missed funerals. I've missed parties, gatherings with my friends, my sons, my two sons. They're important events for them because I took a fight and stuff like that um, because they don't come very often. And when you, when they come, you want to take them, yeah. but we get scheduled. There's a different couple of different ways you get scheduled. I work, I work in the state of California, but I also work in Nevada and some other places, not as often. And if they have a fight coming up, uh, they're looking to match referees with the skill or the qual the the, uh, the skill set of that fight. So there's certain guys you don't put on heavyweight fights because maybe they're five foot four, you know, whatever. I'm just saying. Sure. And there's certain guys that have reputations of handling certain things, and there's certain guys that have negative reputations of breaking people too quick and not letting them fight, you know, whatever. So they look for the skill set. And they'll reach out and they'll either call you if it's from another state or they'll schedule you. But in my state, they schedule us. And it, it could be a week in advance or it could be, you know, six weeks in advance. Oh. Uh, my bosses are really good at giving us, you know, 99% of the time. They give us a lot of notice so we can tell our families, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be with you that day. And, like, my wife's going to Lionel Richie next week. We had this whole thing, hotel, everything planned. I'm not going. Oh, I'm fight! I'm, I'm not going. You watch. So, you watch film and tape about the guy. Like, okay, I see what this guy does, or not really. You want to know maybe the in and outs of a fighter. Absolutely, I do. I differ from other officials. Mm -hmm. I want to know everything I possibly can about that fighter, the both fighters, before I get in that ring, so I'm prepared to handle what happens in front of me. Let me give you the best example. Yeah. If and this happens all the time. You got a, a Virgil Ortiz type guy. There's a million of them. Yeah. You know, uh, a Tifima Lopez when they were real coming up, right? Who do they put him up against? After they give him a bunch of guys that he mows through, the test is they put him up against the, the ex-champion on his way down, right? So I do my research. I want to know what, what that guy's done in his last five and ten fights. I want to know what weights that guy fought at, if he's ever fought at the weight he's fighting, if he's had trouble making weights in the past, if he's ever won at that weight. When was the last time he fought? What did he do in those five to ten prior fights? Has he, has he been inactive? Has he taken one fight a year for the last year? It tells me he's going in for a payday. You bet your ass I'm going to pull him out a little quicker. Wow. I okay. know. Does, it mean, does it mean it sways my opinion? No. But listen – when I'm watching him take a thrashing, it's real. He's not the champion he was 10 years ago, and I'm going to be a lot more concerned, get the doctor in there a lot quicker, confer with my athletic commission to make sure what I'm – they're seeing what I'm seeing, the doctors and the commission. Like, you know, me and the doctors talk in between every round. So I just want – I want to get the guy out before he gets hurt, before he gets permanently hurt. I've always wanted to ask you this. a difference to me. Yeah, I want to ask you this, the Wilder Fury fight. I know you've talked about it a million times. One question about it. 
when Fury goes down, you made him walk left to right. And I never saw that before. I, this is just me. I should have texted you this. What was that? Because you always see walk towards me. Walk to me. And then you made him go sideways. What was up with that? It's, it's pretty uh, easy to understand. This came from the, the ringside physicians who were neurosurgeons. In the old days, they used to do the count. Like, you know, 50 years ago, he did the count. He said, give me your gloves and you let him fight. The, the doctors, the ringside physicians realized that is not a good enough assessment of the guy's ability to intelligently defend himself. So at that point, they used to teach us 25 years ago, make him walk to you to see if he can carry his own weight, if he could physically do that. More recently, the doctors have taught us that the frontal lobe is one of the last things to go in your brain when you're concussed or even when you're dying. And some of the one of the functions in the frontal lobe is the ability to walk forward. So that's why a, a drunk could stagger forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So only walking forward isn't the best test for that guy's cognitive ability. What to make the brain? Let me back up. You know what a concussion is? The the brain's electromagnetic impulses that get sent out from your brain to your extremities is an interruption, like the interruption electricity in a light switch from the concussion. So you know how electricity flows through a wire. And do you ever hear? Do you ever see a, a wire flicker, a light flicker? Of course. It's the same thing. Not all the juice is getting through. So only because some of it's the going brain, through. The brain has either been shaken, yeah. or damaged by pounding into the skull, or instead of the skull moving like this, in the four lobes move as one piece. Like when you're in a car accident, you go like that. When it, the brain gets twisted with an uppercut or a hook, the brain goes in two different directions. Two lobes go one way, two lobes go the other way, and the connective tissue gets pinched and the electrical impulses can't get through. Our job is to see if he's back, if that fighter's back, if those, if he can actually defend himself. And by doing what they taught us is to test its ability better with the brain, a better test is to make them walk to the right or left because having them cross over and turn makes them use different parts of the brain instead of just the frontal lobe. Which is the so last to go, like you said. Wow, makes sense. That's the goal. During a fight, if you're watching a fighter take a beating, are you ever just looking in the corner like, guys, come on. you know your guy, like you said, lost six rounds. He can't knock this guy out. He's taking a beating. Come on. Like, do you ever just let them know, like, come on, bro, like, you're making my job difficult. Have your fighter's best heart, you know, at heart. Listen, every ref worth his salt can tell you that we go in the dressing room to give pre-fight instructions mm -hmm. and 99% of the time we know who's going to win before the fight starts by the quality of the corner and the history we've had with them. But I can't tell you how many times I've been in the ring and every ref will tell you this. Look, I go, I do a flyby in the corner of every every fighter, every round, in between rounds. I just look at his body language, listen for a minute, see how he's breathing, compare it to the round, compare it to where he was when the fight started to see the progression of damage and fatigue. I also go in because the inspectors will say, Jack, I heard him say he can't see out of his right eye. Jack, I think he broke his hand. Does that mean I'm going to stop the fight? No, but it's a tool in my tool chest to help me get the guy out of there. I go into corners on a fighter. It happens. Everybody will yeah. tell you. Fighter is getting his ass kicked. 
And I go in there, and the corner man's telling him, you're doing great. Just keep doing exactly yeah. what you're doing. Michael, I'm getting that guy out of there. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, I said when you're, you know, you ask another athlete, what guys did you look up to? You know, Richard Steele, um, Cortez, Mills Lane. Did you guys, did you look up to certain refs? Did you kind of model your thing after somebody? You know, I'm a, I'm a big plagiarist. I took a little bit from everybody. <laughs> you know, I didn't really care who the ref was. If it looked good and it worked, I, I called the guy up and I asked, hey, hey why do you do that? Or whatever, you know, and so I learned what, what's going on. But, but I was very fortunate when I was a younger ref, when I was first getting started, a guy who was a fantastic referee named Marty Denkin, uh, you know, he took me under his wing and gave me a, a strong, strong foundation on, on stuff. And then throughout the time, you know, Lou Filippo and Pat Russell, and I had some really good mentors that uh, helped me along the way. And, I, you know, I'm fortunate. I've always had somebody in California that I could turn to to say I had this situation, what do you think? And I'm going to give you something you won't, you probably don't know, but you know who Big John McCarthy is? Of course, of course. Me and John are really close friends. We still be neighbors and whatever. So he is the most brilliant combative sports mind that I've ever met. He's just whatever. So there's never a time to this day I can't call him up and get an honest answer, even when I don't like it. Yeah, We go at it. You know, we go at it. Ah, fuck you, no way. You know, all this shit. But we, but we challenge ourselves to step out of the box and get and do what's best for combative sports, do what's best for boxing in my case. So I've always – and that's, you know, it's a shame, man. There's a lot of referees that the only guy that they can – the only mentoring they're getting is when they look in the mirror. Oh. And uh, when you get mentoring by looking in the mirror, you're an idiot. What? What's changed the most in boxing in the last five years or maybe the last 20 years? What's the biggest difference in changing with officiating too? Social media. Okay. Social media has changed everything. Look, the way we got results back in the day, I used to, if I didn't see the fight on TV, I picked up the Daily News and there was this little article in the Daily News that said it was a fight at Madison Square Garden last night. Now, before I get out of the ring, the fights are on the internet. As a referee, there's no hiding you can't cover anything up. You mess something up, it's around forever. You could, it's being used in someone's training video and stuff. And um, there's just no getting around it. So the scrutiny and the pressure is uh, tenfold what it was when I first started. Look, I, got, I, learned, I cut my teeth and learned on a lot of club shows with 500 people in the audience. Now... You know, you get it's a lot different when the whole world it stays on there. Must be real tough on kids going to school now because when you mess up in school, they put it on the internet and stays forever too. So just that's what's changed. When you think officiating or big fights, it's New York, Vegas, California. But yet there's fights everywhere. Is it difficult for a, you know, a ref in maybe a small town in I must say St. Louis, so to, who are doing matches there to ever elevate themselves and maybe not be taken by the big moment like you, I think I know where you're going. Yeah, but, pressure uh, doesn't bother you. Yet you're getting all the experience. Is it difficult maybe for a guy from St. Louis or Atlanta where they're not getting the bigger fights to ever elevate themselves to be at your status? They can't. You know, no, it's it's absolutely possible. But you know, the problem is, is the problem with it is there's a lot of referees that think that this is a part-time job. It's a part-time job with a full-time commitment. You have to be a student of the game to improve. You really have to go to uh, as much training as possible. You really need to have some peers 
that you uh, watch fights with on TV from your respective homes and watching the situations and documenting them and calling each other and saying, do you see what just happened? What do you think would have been the right thing to do? And learning and growing and keeping. This is my journal. I've had this journal on refereeing since day one and pretty much wow. every situation that I've ever come up with is in here. And this is how I get in the zone when I haven't ref. When I haven't refed in two months, I got to I got to be in the zone the first second of the first round. There's no warm up for me, so I got a ritual that I put myself through. And there's a lot of good guys that do it. And keeping a journal for yourself and going over all these things with other referees will make you better. Then you got to go to the sanctioning bodies, uh, um, conventions, and you got to just put yourself out there and try to bring value to the sport and get better. And you'll be able to do what I'm talking about and, and get anywhere and do this guys. Hey, look, you know, Bill Clancy is, I do not. Bill Clancy, look him up on box rec when we're done. He's from North Carolina. It is not the boxing capital of America. And he's got 1250 plus fights as a referee because him and this guy, Wayne Spinolo, we call it Wayne's world. Those two guys jump in a car together and will drive 300 miles for a hundred bucks to ref fights. They love the game. I love the game. If the if you're the kind of guy who loves the game or gal, you're not going to say, "Well, you know, I don't want to go." You're just going to go because you get to ref, and and you get the camaraderie. You get to, you know, you get to be in part of boxing, and that's going to pay dividends. That's the bank. Mm-hmm. You're putting everything in the bank, and when you need to pull something out, it's going to be there. You got to have a full tool chest when you're in that ring because. Every knockdown is not the same. Every headbutt's not the same. There's always little things happening that make a, a big difference with what, how you handle it. You're preaching. Look, I just got a tape. I just got a tape. Ready for this? Fighter in uh, – the guy said to me, the commissioner says, hey, Jack, is this is – this, was this a knockdown? I, I called the guy back. Absolutely, it was a knockdown. The problem is the referee – it was a knockdown on the ropes. The referee didn't call it a knockdown. And then it was an eight-round fight. It happened in the second round, and it changed the scoring of the fight. If you had those tools in your tool chest, you know what you're looking at. It's a knockdown, and, it, you know, and then the guy gets his rest, and he gets to continue. That actually is going to lead my, to my next question. You're talking so much about improving and you know taking self-inventory. What can be done to improve officiating and judging, which is critiqued more than anything? Is there things that can be done? Or is it just human nature? No, I'm, I'm, one of the, I'm one of the guys that's actually trying. So um, I, I sit on I, – I applied myself, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be chosen. I sit on the rules committee for the Association of Box Commission, and I'm currently in the process of trying to get a couple of rules changed that are so antiquated, I can't even tell you. Um, just they're not good rules. I'll give you a great example. Fighter A and B are fighting. The end of the round, you hear – 10 seconds. They go at it to try to win the round. The bell rings and fighter A lets one go well after the bell and knocks down fighter B and hurts him. Okay. Fighter B, accidental foul. Mm-hmm. Fighter B is entitled to five minutes, up to five minutes of rest. The way the rule is written in the book right now, the one minute rest period shall start and the fighter shall get it up to five minutes of rest after that one minute rest period. That's not a good way to go. And I got 
Freddie Rhodes, Bernard Hopkins, Oscar De La Hoya, Robert Garcia, and a whole bunch of guys documenting why they don't want their fighter coming back to the corner concussed to get instructions. They'd rather have the guy sit on a stool in a neutral corner for five minutes. If he can continue, now he's recovered. Now he comes back to the corner and he gets his instructions while he can comprehend them. It makes so much sense. But it, it's it's rules that have to be changed, and it just doesn't happen overnight. Before we finish up with the quick hit questions, you do uh, like a ref school, don't you? Is it okay? So uh, we're I'm getting old. I'm not going to be around, you know, a whole <laughs> bunch longer. And uh, the commission wanted to get some new guys, and I get calls all the time from people. Uh, I'm flattered. Emails, calls, texts, whatever. Hey, could you look at this fight? Could you look at my fight? I did this. Tell me what could I could have done different or better. So people are starving for the information. They really want it. And our commission told us, a few of us, to, hey, start training some guys, you know, guys, gals, whatever. So I put together a little school, and it's a three-day course. It's called Soul Arbiter. As a referee, you're the sole arbiter. You're the only one who can make the decision. So it's a three-day course, two days in a classroom, 10 hours each day, watching films, going over the philosophy of the what, why, what happened, why. You got to look at it that way, and that creates the how to handle it. The, the philosophy creates the methodology. And then, so we do that. We do the mechanics. Next, the last day is uh, eight hours, nine hours in a gym with professional fighters who I – pay to bring bring them in, pay for the gym, all that stuff. And I sit with them. They're great. I've been using them for all these years. They are great actors and they do stuff to each other. Headbutts, knockdowns, punch when the guy's down. You name it, they're doing it. And the referee's got to react. And then we stop and we express to them, hey, you missed this. Or think about this. And the pressure that's put on them because we're watching and all their peers are watching is just like being in a fight. Just like being in a fight. That's intense too. Yeah, and they love it. We critique them, give them a written critique, give it back, and we set up. We have a we're a solar operative family. So when we're done with the NLs three days, you have a network and a support system. You look this this last weekend we did the class. It was buzzing in the room on all the breaks. Everybody was getting along. They were all talking to each other, and they were making connections to hopefully connect you know about fights and things in the future it was just great this time it's great a great uh, experience for us ready to finish up with some quick hit questions yeah you and i are at a bar in new york city you want to impress everyone in the bar jack who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them they would text you back can ask you to name drop here i couldn't tell you i don't know you don't have anyone cool in your phone i think all of them are cool yeah <laughs> How about I don't know. one boxer in history you wish you could have officiated their fight? Oh, of course, Muhammad Ali. Uh, but, but you know, my, my favorite fighter growing up was Marvin Hagler, so I would have loved to have refed him in a fight. But, man, I would have I would give my – well, nothing. But yeah, uh, yeah. the Hagler, Hearns, Leonard, Durant, oh. Pino Cuevas, you know, Ali, Frazier, Foreman, Lyle, all those – it was a great era a fight that I would have loved to have been reffing it. Mike Tyson's another guy. I would have loved to have ref Mike Tyson. But, hey, I didn't get to do it, and I'm happy with the – I'm totally content. I'm blessed just to be wearing that goofy bow tie and being in there. Um, and I'm very blessed to have, you know, have had 
referees from good fights and big fights. I mean, you know, yeah. great fighters. And and what's the coolest thing is, you know, 10 years after they're retired, they're calling you by your name. And to me, that is the greatest thing in the world. They re- when, when you do a good job for them, you know, you do an honest and a fair job, not that you cheated or did anything for them, but they know who the guys are that are, that are just honest and fair guys. And they know you by name. And it's great when they want to come over and say hello wow. during the fights. And, uh, hey, remember you did that fight? And, you know, like, I'll give you a great story. So Andre Ward fought Edwin Rodriguez. And I ref the fight, and it was really ugly. And I requested that the commission fine both fighters because they just wouldn't listen. Fight's over. They got fined. I, I see Rodriguez. I don't see Rodriguez for, like, six years, seven years. I see him in a fight. He walks up to me. He's walking down the hall. And I'm saying to myself, this could go either way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is this? And um, he walks up to me. He goes, I want my money back, man. Come on, man. Give me my money back. Uh, and, then, and then three years after that, this April, that just passed, I'm doing a uh, class for the Association of Boxing Commissions, a boxing referee certification class. I'm in New York doing the class. And who's sitting in the class? Edwin Rodriguez came to take the class because now that he's retired, he, he became a, a state trooper in New England. Wow. He wants to get back in boxing as a referee or a judge or something. He took the class. So I failed his ass. No, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He's a good guy. He's still in great shape. He's like a rock, that guy. Oh, that's awesome here. Brick. How about coolest piece of memorabilia that you own? Uh, uh, hold on. I'm going to show it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a this is a piece of the World Trade Center reclamated the steel that was reclamated by one of his companies and they gave it to us all the guys who served down there. That's awesome! Wow, that's that's a, that's a real good thing. answer. But but also the the other thing I, I I'll show you one more picture. Yeah. So growing up in my era, you know, Rocky was an unbelievable movie. It really it actually had an impact on me and. I always wanted to meet Celeste Stallone, and then I can't tell you how many times I've ref fights where he's sitting in the audience, but then I got to work on the contender for years. So I got to meet him and get to know him and all that stuff. And uh, during the contender, he was so great to us. He was just, he's such a down-to-earth, personable guy. Brooklyn guy, Ranger fan. You're out there in California now, Rangers or Kings. Rangers will always be in my heart, but I love the Kings, and I had season six instead of Kings as well. Two more. Last show Jack Reese binged-watched? Um, Netflix um, designated Survivor. Was it good? Excuse me? Was it good? It was great. Uh, I love that. I love all that kind of stuff uh, with, like, Jack Ryan and uh, President. But this was with um, – I forgot his name. Uh, his father is Donald Sutherland. Um it was real good. It was it was interesting that this really happens in the government. That there's you know they, Congress was meet. The premise of the story was Congress was meeting, and they always leave two people in separate locations in case all of them are wiped out. President and vice president, and this guy became the president. <laughs> so, how about this? It's three a.m. You had a long night. You get home. What's your go-to snack before you go to bed? I'm a pretzel guy, man. I like pretzels. <laughs> Jack Reese, this was a pleasure and honor. It was so different. Usually I have the fighters on and stuff. To have you on, to get the other side of it, 
Dude, thank you for the stories. Thank you for the service. This was an absolute blast, bro. I've been dying to do this, and I hope you had fun. Thank you for having me on again, just being down to earth and letting me be who I am, for Jack from Brooklyn, you know what I mean? Bro, you're so, the greatest, man. Good and, uh, very nice. And uh, hey, send me uh, all the links and everything so I can I watch and stuff like that. Jack, I'll nice talk to you soon, man. brother. All right, have a good one. Be good, my friend. Bye-bye.